welcome to some derps talk about games i'm your co-host mango and i am your co-host buddy and today we're going to talk a little bit about working with the rule of cool but before we do that buddy why don't you show the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast well it's pretty simple uh on this podcast we like to talk about games and last week we kind of ended off on this like weirdly provocative uh like thought-provoking discussion about you know like what it, what are some of like the best ways to incentivize like meaningful and interesting kind of combat in uh in tabletop rp scenarios and i guess we're just going to keep continuing on with that thought um to 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 set the groundwork the rule of cool typically defines a a like i guess like a positive correlation between doing something that is cool and being effective right where you kind of say because this thing is a cool or interesting or you know novel way to approach the problem your effectiveness when approaching that problem increases right and and not only that but there's also a tendency to kind of be like it's cool so the chance of it going off successfully is also heightened uh yeah uh like you know like the the gm's usually willing to give you kind of like "Eh, it's close you know like maybe set the dc a little bit lower than it needs all that kind of stuff um and what this, and I, I think we're going to focus mostly around Pathfinder, because, um, or the systems about that level of crunch, because you can do this easily in like Seventh C, because everything's very abstracted away. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the reason we were talking about it is because the rule of cool is kind of what dominates um, fighting in uh, uh, WoW roleplay, right? Which is yeah. all text-based, no rules sort of thing. Um, the you you end up with these kinds of rule of cool encounters because otherwise just the writing is uninteresting and bland right it's right like, i attack you miss you know what i mean like that's not that's not interesting to read and so you have to make it more interesting to read by doing you know by doing like cool shit <clears throat> but in a lot of ways i feel like pathfinder is kind of pathfinder like really at the end of the day a lot of this is going to come down to incentives right um and pathfinder it has a certain set of incentives that encourages a certain kind of play and i'm not sure i would say that i think pathfinder has the right sort of priorities or really kind of three five yeah um I, i've got some thought about that too i've, I've got a couple of things that i want to think about talk about because i you know in preparing for the show i i gave it some thought and, and kind of the first thing the, the big problem we we kind of um uh, identified last week is that um, if you do something cool and it's more effective, the players are going to want to do it every time. Um, and that's just kind of like either it's free power or it becomes boring or, or, uh, or, st- you know, just, just feels bad, feels fake. Um, I, I, I like the, I like the fastball special example. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, the fastball special is when Colossus hurls Wolverine like a, I guess like he's, he's it's like a blades of death and it's it's cool and whatever. Um, there are people who even say that the fastball special is overused, but that's that's a separate point. Um, but the fact of the matter is is that comic book writers can avoid using the the fastball special because they're not trying to make the most effective move every turn, right? They're trying to write a story. Um, whereas if the fastball special is more effective than a than a normal attack, your player is going to use it every turn. And I, and I think what, what kind of this boils down to is. Um, the rule of cool butts up in a weird way against uh, what I'm going to call the rule of consistency, which is that once you've adjudicated once on something, everything else that 
that kind of uses that same form should be adjudicated in the same way. Um, and this is kind of like goes back to fundamentals of role-playing games where games need to be fair in order to be fun. And if you're arbitrarily ruling differently on identical actions, that's not good game design or, or game mastering, perhaps. Um, and uh, I think without that rule, the rule of cool actually works because doing the same thing over and over, it stops being cool unless the rule of cool doesn't apply, but that breaks the rule of consistency. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like that's why it's kind of not a problem. Like, part of a GM's job, like, a lot of, like, WoW stuff is GM'd in a very traditional sense, right? Like, where there are characters in a scene, and then there's somebody who controls kind of all the other pieces of that scene. But a GM's job isn't just to keep, like, the game fair. It's also to kind of um, keep the... I, it's, it's also kind of, to, like, to keep, like, the story moving and flowing so that like hypothetically let's say you're an audience member and you're reading this story right like that it should also be interesting so there's a certain uh, like aspect of it that's like as a gm you need to kind of police the writing to make sure the writing is good and that's not a that's not a luxury that you really ever have i mean like i guess you're unless you're doing like a really performative kind of dm uh dungeon experience uh like a pathfinder experience or something like critical role maybe um but otherwise like the people who are all involved are just like you and your friends and so uh, you don't have that same kind of like outsized outward pressure in the in the same kind of way do you know what i mean yeah absolutely absolutely um kind of along with that I think another problem, this is very specific to Pathfinder, and I think this might touch on some of the things that you want to talk about with with, um, with Pathfinder's priorities when it comes to combat, is, uh, this is this is gonna sound funny, I've been watching a lot of uh, Boku no Hero Academia, so I've been thinking about this a lot, but um, part of the rule of cool is basically like, how anime... To, for lack of a better term, a, a fight is. And I think uh. this is something that comes in conflict with the weird simulationist, abstractionist issues that Pathfinder sometimes has and D&D 3.5 has. So, roughly speaking, anime is, like, how kind of cool and, like, flashy you want the the kind of the, the, the mental image of the fight to be. Um, and uh, the the I think part of the, the fundamental issue is, is that um, traditionally a lot of the, the flashiness and description gets put on spells and not a lot on kind of like strikes and, and whatnot. And that's left a lot to the players. And so they end up, even if they could be more creatively described, described when there's like, when the difference between like a flashy sword swing and I swing my ax is mechanically the same um, to a, to a player, especially a mechanics driven player, um, especially in, in rote combat, uh, those, those, uh, Swings tend to fall towards the the more boring aspect, um, and as a result, when you try and do something over the top, that feels like it, it engages with the rule of cool, which is fine. Um, but part of the problem with that is is and I think this is part of the core issue, is that skill checks in Pathfinder I think are tend towards skew towards the simulationist side, right? Like the reason you'd want to do like a cool high leaping slash that you couldn't normally do is that doing a vertical leap in Pathfinder is tough right like it's fairly true to real life unless yeah. you're like a monk or you've got some sort of magic right like but like a regular ass fighter who in like say like 
uh, an anime battle would be able to do a 10-foot leap, no problem. In Pathfinder, 10-foot leap's a DC 40 acrobatics check, right? That's not happening. Um, uh, and I think that the, the fundamental takeaway I had, or, or the takeaway I had from the start is that um, kind of on your on your simulationist to abstractionist scale, the closer you like the the closer you are to simulationist, the more the less anime your fight is able to be. Essentially, that simulationist abstractionist um, a continuum acts as a cap on how dramatic or anime in, in that term uh, a fight can be. Yeah, and I specifically want to dig into the system because I think it's important to kind of establish this. Like, because if if I'm doing something like that in Pathfinder, right, you are adding additional conditions for failure, right, with a very kind of murky success rate, right? Like, so if I hit my if I hit my acrobatics check, what happens, right? But a lot of the time. If you miss the acrobatics check, you don't even get to make the attack because you're trying to do something like leap a table, right? And right. you miss the acrobatics check and you just end at the table. And so you don't even get to make the attack at the other end of it, right? And so you're adding in kind of additional failure conditions without really a tangible bonus on the other side in a lot of cases, right? Um, and what this kind of ends up incentivizing from a systems perspective is for someone to just white attack, right? Find you, – you want to find ways to minimize your failure conditions so you just walk up to someone and swing your sword, right? You don't worry about, you know, big flashy shit because big flashy shit – like it, it, in, in the high risk, high reward, well, the, how high is the reward? And that risk is always going to be really high, Um and that's kind of like the like the the failing of incentives, um, and a lot of people there are a lot of systems in order to kind of like offset and deal with this, right? Like Mark has an action point system that he used for a long time. I have an action point system that is in use in Hell's Rebels, though we don't use it all that often um, anymore, just because there's not a lot of uh, like die rolling. Like I feel like dice rolled dice rolled in that game is low. Um, uh, and then even in, and then in Pathfinder, there is, like, the hero point system, which is kind of, like, an optional. And then also, uh, like, Mythic can be used for this, right? Like, Mythic... Mythic what can't... Is, mythic what, what lets you add, like, a D6 to any of your D20 rolls or yeah, a D8 yeah, yeah. as it scales up. So, yeah, it, serve, it can serve a similar function. Similarly, um, 5e has Inspiration, which you can spend to gain advantage on a roll. But these are all kind of mitigating ways to deal with it. Um, and I, I tried, I tried for a while to try and think of maybe some sort of solution that would, um, that, that could eschew kind of the necessity of it being a consumable resource, but I, I just, for the life of me, couldn't think of anything. Yeah, I have a hard time thinking about it in, outside of, um, you know, the confines of it being a consumable resource. I think all of those systems that I described has problems, uh, right. including the system that I designed for, you know, for Hell's Rebels, um, and even though I think it is a good way to approach the problem, um, I, I ended up kind of reframing my thinking a little bit and kind of realizing that, like, part of rule of cool is baked into class features. Um, and if that, in, insofar as we think that that <laughs> contrast is necessary, right? Like, the contrast between me making white attacks and me... Um, uh, white attacks is a wow term for, you know, like, auto attacks. Uh, so, like, me making auto attacks... And me making flashy anime attacks, right? Um, uh, one of the biggest things that can trigger 
flashy anime attacks are class features. And in a certain sense, I was being a little uncharitable to Pathfinder because Pathfinder has a lot of stuff like that. It's just baked into class features that I think don't live up to that hype in a lot of ways. Uh, so, for instance, Smite um, or Challenge. Like, a lot of the times it is I activate Smite or I activate Challenge on this guy, right? Yeah. And you're getting, like, bonus damage or whatever, like, bonus to hit and everything like that. But at the end of the day, I think that these are sort of, like, the rule of cool moments where you can be, you know, making bigger, flashier uh, sorts of plays. But in a weird way, this me mechanizing it as part of the system is what prevents it from feeling um, dynamic or unique because it's just a class feature, you know, and you get a certain number of uses per day. Yeah. Um, I, I also think part of it is, like, I, agree, I agree with you entirely. Um, part of it, too, is I think that there are a lot kind of what I'm going to call more mundane rule of cool type moments that don't get encompassed in class features because it would be super niche if they were. Um, and, th like, there are, there have at least historically been, I, I don't know if there, there currently are, but there's, like, rules for, say, bursting through objects, right? And there are classes that can, like, Kool-Aid man through walls. I think that's, like, a feature of, of your Dreadnought class, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I know that, like, there's there's at least one archetype somewhere that has something similar. I think it's weaker than, than your version, but um, that's fine. The issue is, is that what you, like, those are great for, like, situations where you have to use them. But, like, let, let's take your kind of, like, leap the table example, right? And change it slightly, right? Like, this is, like, your half-orc barbarian, right? Uh, when he's trying to get to an enemy on the other side of the table... Like, the kind of cool cool thing in your mind is he, like, throws the table all the way or, like, bursts through it or, you know, something that involves him not walking around the table, yeah. right? And even if he has the class features to support it, it just makes him more likely that he won't fail that burst through the table check, um, which is still a bigger risk than than walking around the table, which he is perfectly capable of doing. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure how to, how to reconcile that difference. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the because the Dreadnought class, I, th I think what it is, is if something is blocked, if you have line of sight on a charge, but something is blocking your way, you can attempt strength checks to, like, break the things and, like, ignore hardness or something like that, with the idea being that, like, you can just juggernaut your way through, right, like... You know, if you can if you can get line of sight on a charge, you can bust through a wall, you can bust through a table, um, sort of thing. Um, but I do I do kind of like I do kind of like feel that. Um, and I've also seen other you know like for instance I think the swashbuckler class that was in three five got got a charge called acrobatic charge that essentially was the same thing except it was um, you can. You know, you can burst through a window or something kind of along those lines. Like you, you burst through a window and you don't take the the damage from from falling glass or something like that. Or you can like hop a table in order to get your charge in. Um, so like that stuff is definitely definitely you know possible. I guess uh, to like systemize it in your games these these sorts of ways. I don't know. It's just about matching up the right incentives. I feel like. Right. Um, yeah. No, I agree with you. And, and that's a tough, you know, like, that's a tough thing. Because also at the same time, like, you know, there's something about the rule of cool in a lot of ways that I do think kind of requires a unique aspect. One of the, one of the most interesting things I've, I think I've seen in regards to this was when playing with um, uh, our old friend, 
Sam uh, Sam Nastasi, uh, who uh, shout out Sam, man, yeah, right, long Found, time, right, yeah, founder of the uh, of our college gaming club. Yeah, he he found we all founded the, that gaming club uh, together, and we were playing in a game, and I feel like we were having a fight in a like in a like a bar or something like that. Were you in this game? I don't think so. I, we were having a fight. We were having a fight in like the cellar of a bar, right? And I was playing a druid, and I had an ability called Explosive Seed, which was like you know like an acorn or something, and then the acorn explodes after like a couple of seconds. And I remember we were fighting like something, and we were getting fucking wrecked. And at one point, I use Explosive Seed, but I hold the, I put the Explosive Seed next to a. Um, like a leg of a shelf with a bunch of shit on it or something and then it blows up and then the shelf falls over and it like crushes the person and it does a whole bunch of extra damage and it like solves the encounter for us and everything like that um that there was like i, I don't think we got paid or something because we like ruined the guy's fucking cellar um but like but like it's it's stuff like that right that that is quite literally one-time use only right even if I, even if we were to say that um like smite and challenge uh, fit inside of like rule of cool design, which I do think they do to a certain extent. There is a certain kind of ubiquitousness to it, where well, these are things that have to be able to be used in a wide variety of circumstances. Otherwise, they're undervalued or underpowered class features, right? Um, and that makes them <clears throat> like a little bit like rote. But like, man, like using explosive seed in order to damage props in the environment in order to do a whole bunch of environmental damage right or another example of this is like nick um like dropping the dropping like the bell in that bell tower fight right in, yeah. in rune lords um you know like doing stuff like that is very rule of cool to me but like it defies systemization because it is so specific and unique right and i like the idea of of something like you know, where we're, we have a tough fight at the bottom of a bell tower, and so somebody is like running up the bell tower to cut the, you know, like to cut the ropes or something to drop this big giant heavy bell on the big bad or whatever. But then you run into situations um, that feel like that feel like you're you're doing mechanics in a WoW raid boss, right? Yeah. Um, which 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 is a problem that I've run into in Hell's Rebels before, right? Where really, at the end of the day, the only real way to defeat the boss is to do the mechanics. If you do the mechanics, you win. If you don't, you die. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think to, kind of, to kind of, to your point, environmental rule of cool things are, are easier to deal with because you can just kind of let them be and, you know, straight up rule of cool them you know, that works because it was cool and it's effective because it was cool and it hits because it was cool and not have to worry about it too much because a situation where the big bat is next to a bookcase that you can throw an acorn next to is relatively unique. And if it happens two or three times over the course of the campaign, that's not a problem. Um, the issue, I think, comes with some of these more normal situations, right? Like if, if again, if you, if you make a continuum of things from like, very normal to to kind of very specific um uh if you you can't rule of if you apply rule of cool to things that are i, I think called the last name like self-contained right like even if they are kind of like specialized moves or that you think they would be if the players are able to do them over and over again just because of the nature of, of, of how they work right um uh then they will 
like yeah. so so an example I, I was thinking of was something like let's say like there's a dude on the other side of like like, you know, like enemies escaping and he's running away and he's gotten over a wall um and the way the, the character solves this or the player solve this is like you know well uh like the barbarian runs and then uh and then our fighter holds up a shield and he launches off the shield and he launches over the wall and he brings his axe down on the guy on the other side right oh man that's really cool right like and, you know, you, you apply your standard rule of cool thing to that, right? Maybe you make it more effective because, you know, like you've just pulled off something really cool. But if you think about it, right, there's no reason in every fight that the barbarian doesn't just leap off the fighter shield every time. Yeah. Even even if there isn't a wall in the way, right? Like, they, you know, you can mess with the numbers to, to incentivize it differently. Um, and, like, it, like, this goes back to your thing, like, like, how do you incentivize things, right? But, like, if you miss the balance on that, then you have a fighter and a barbarian who are just launching themselves off, like, you know, do, doing that move for the rest of the campaign, even if it's not, like, needed for the situation because uh, because of that kind of rule of cool ruling. Yeah, and, and not only that, there's a certain expectation that white attacks, um, that auto attacks are, you know, an, an effective way to play, right? Yeah. Where where I, as a fighter, don't, you know, like, my, my regular base attacks should be, you know, pretty good, right? They're, they're not the best thing in the world. Maybe I have a couple of conditionals, right, where I'm, like, Colbjorn or something, and I'm trying to, right, like, hit a hit a certain sort of, like, full combo of attacks and a trip attempt and then all these AOOs and stuff like that. So, like, you know, that's the, these are a certain subset of conditions that you have in order to make yourself, like, bonus or, 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 or better, right? But when Colbjorn was running into Falcon Punch... Um, you know, a, a creature that can't be tripped, right? Like, he should still, still be pretty effective at that, right? Right. But the problem is, is that when it comes to, like, this sort of, like, rule of cool stuff, you are, your effectiveness, you know, like, when you are upping the effectiveness in this in this sort of way, you run the risk of just kind of raising the tide on all of those kinds of attacks um, if you're not really, like, thinking about it or, like, dealing with it in a in a good way um and yeah, and, and i think that that's like that's like a really that's the dangerous dangerous part of you know systemizing anything along those lines yeah and, and i i think this is like you need a base attack that is kind of like the status quo that can be that that gets used most of the time right like like think about wow since we've been going back to that right like white attacks are are like white attacks are like a negative one right like you're 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 Actual zero is like your your resource generator or whatever. At least for yeah. monk and right, like monk and rogue, it's like what is it? It's like uh, I forget what they're what, what for monk. It's tiger. Your palm, right? yeah, it's tiger. It used to be it used to be a different move, uh, but yeah, it's tiger palm for monk, and it's um, the main combo point generator for rogues. But saber those slash. saber slash right. Um, uh, like those are your like actually kind of your white attacks if you like in 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 this in this term right and your white attacks are like you know whatever who cares um yeah i mean to be honest with you over time blizzard has decreased the value of white attacks quite a bit um when i was playing in wrath of the lich king and even before that in vanilla right like a large percentage of your damage was coming from your white attacks um was just you know staying in range and landing swing after swing of uh you know of like auto attack damage nowadays you know i i want to say that the the most damaging thing i had on my you know 
on my damage meters when I was raiding in Ice Crown Citadel were my white attacks as like a Fury Warrior. Um, and nowadays, it is probably the least important uh, thing on my... Not, not quite the bottom of the barrel of my damage meters, but like it just feels bad if, you know, 33% of your damage is just be close enough to the boss that you can swing your axes. Um, and it did lead to some kind of weird gameplay because like, you know, losing out on white attacks, I mean, right now, like, like for, for a warrior losing out on white attacks, like lowers your rage generation and stuff like that. But like when, when you are losing out on white attacks, which are your most contributive damage source, right? Um, you are, you are now prioritizing things like, you know, not interrupting a swing or something or kind of like things along those lines and that's like a really like unfun shitty way to play and so i almost kind of wonder if that's me suggesting to you know like pathfinder devs right that like maybe your white attacks you know like maybe your very 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 basic attacks should not be super you know like should not be very effective they should be pretty actively inefficient in a way that, um, in a way that kind of, well, you know, I guess actually, see, now that I'm talking it through, there really is no comparison between a white attack and an ability. Every, every, uh, every attack is, a, is like an ability use, I guess, in Pathfinder, right? Yeah. Because nothing is completely passive like that. That, that, that my, my, my point in bringing that up was, was essentially that if you rise the tide, as you put it, um, with something like, with your Tiger Palm Strikes, your Saber Slashes, right, um, then you you just have the problem again just one level up um and so i think i think you you always need that base level attack i think strikes are fine for that in pathfinder um uh it's just again it's it's solving it's solving the incentives problem so that you encourage your players to do cool things when they present themselves but not try and like abuse rules kind of caveats when when it happens right um and i i think i think a lot of it is is not a a huge out like and not an outsized problem right like it's i think most players work well within the system um that that exists because a lot of like a lot of them aren't like and the fury of my vengeance makes me do extra damage right like most most players are, are going to be good about that, um, but but like the there's two senses queen right it's 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 then encouraging players to play out the more interesting things that they do so you, so everybody has a better time right like, um, I and and I don't I I've experimented with this with like trying to, um, trying to like get people to describe their attacks I I did this in in Wrath of the Righteous like you know like. Yeah, uh, you, you should like just describe it, and like sometimes it works. Sometimes it's people don't like want to bother, um, and sometimes like with certain players, um, they'll undercut it by just being as 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 blatantly uh, silly as possible. Right? Yeah, like, like memeing about it. Yeah, I hate that memeing yeah. about it. Always like pisses me off. I have a hard time with getting people to describe their attacks, mostly because it bogs down the game by a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're adding a lot of time, and, like, rounds already take, like, sort of long enough. I do think, you know, a pretty good middle ground is, like, when somebody lands a killing blow, what does that look like sort of thing. Um, I do that sometimes. I especially think it's useful early in the game, because it helps people kind of, um, 
like understand sort of like one another in a way uh, but like when, once you're kind of getting into the later levels and you really are slowing things down i am not a big fan of uh adding to that time to give people sort of like flashy killing blows on like mooks so so something that i think works out really well is in my 5e game uh the gm like will do it right like he he will he will describe briefly what happens that that keeps it that keeps it very kind of tight and, and and doesn't blow out the combat and there's kind of like the opportunity for us to narrate a special attack if we want to right like um and i think i think that's a, a really good middle ground that can really help draw things in um uh and you know i that's that's another thing for the gm to draw to juggle but i just i i think it works so well that i that i that, I, that I, i'd be remiss if i didn't mention it um shout outs to chris who does a really excellent job with it uh yeah for real definitely i think really at the end of the day thinking about this problem has made me just become very aware of passive bonuses in pathfinder and how bad i think they are for the game yeah we've I talked agree. about this a little bit in the context of like flaming long swords um, and I'm honestly, like, insanely surprised that they're not getting rid of them in uh, in Pathfinder 2E. Like, one of the biggest things that they did in 4th edition was get rid of kind of those sorts of um, magic items. But I think at the end of the day, like, conditional stuff is just a lot more interesting um, to play with. Both kind of from, like, a mechanics and from, like, a, you know, storytelling sort of rule of cool perspective. Like, I think... I, I think... Colbjorn was a compelling character both mechanically right like can he land a trip can he reposition somebody with key throw in order to you know what I mean like like proc a bunch of AOOs for his allies right like that all of that stuff I think was just kind of like dynamic tactical gameplay um but it was also something that created right like moments like Colbjorn suplexing the dragon um and stuff like that so you know I th- I it is possible to do this just kind of purely through the mechanics, um, and I wonder, you know, if incentivizing that sort of conditional base gameplay and really what I, so what I mean by conditional base gameplay is kind of removing a lot of the passive bonuses that allow you to kind of up your attack and damage, and saying that those kinds of bonuses only apply under certain sorts of conditions. Um, so like if Colbjorn if Colbjorn can get a trip off, right, that increases his his damage output by a whole bunch, and so that becomes kind of like the condition in order for him to rise like above and beyond. And there are kind of these two different states of Colbjorn. One of them that is no trip and is kind of just like a full attack, you know, dual wielding brawler, and one of them that is uh, that is full trip, which I mean has has the upside even of tossing bad guys into uh threatened squares to allow your uh to allow your party members to kind of like wail on him together um and i wonder how much you could kind of stretch those kinds of conditions in order to make hunting for that kind of gameplay um like better like i almost think path or sorry starfinder has this when it comes to uh solarians where the condition becomes like the timer and building up your photon and your uh your what's the other one neutron yeah i, I forget it's it's uh I feel void like like, yeah the, i think it's photon and neutron state okay um, 
and and then like getting to the to that state allows you to like use a big super move or whatever. Um, that seems like a pretty good way to design a class uh, to me in order to kind of give you know like these big moments for something like in the Pathfinder game uh, that we were playing in with with Nick and with Charles. Charles was playing a uh, a Solarian. I mean, even at Gen Con when none of us really understood or knew Starfinder in depth yet, we still understood the kind of like big moment that a photon solarian getting to use his supernova ability where he does big a big aoe um damage uh like what that kind of like felt that felt like i mean um uh, quick correction it is graviton mode graviton uh, mode fair enough um but yeah I, I i think you're ultimately right in a lot of those things i i feel less strong like less good about again things that are fully self-generated right like your smites your challenges um, your your Solarian modes because they're not things you have to like. So the thing like I think Solarian gets closer because the things you have to strategize around are like getting yourself in the right position when you hit that state um, because of just the way that the the powers work right. But like things like Smite and Challenge, which feel very similar to me, don't feel like they are as interesting because you don't have to worry about anything really, right? Like you don't you can just like challenge something and go hit it and not have to worry about like like a lot of the other th like I, I think a better version of it is it's like in sneak attacks right sneak attacks are 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 conditional gameplay they yeah, might yeah, be yeah. A little, sneak attacks are a great example um they might be slightly too easy to accomplish to really drive things but they, they drive it enough right sometimes in negative ways we're all familiar with the pathfinder conga line of death um but uh it, it at least kind of gives you a uh, a little bit, um, a little bit to drive there. I think the danger becomes is is, um, I think like sneak attacks are in danger of kind of crossing over into the the white attack territory, right? Like that that's the that's the thing that the rogue needs to make sure accomplishes every turn. Otherwise, he kind of falls behind in his effectiveness. Um, but I like uh, I, I think five like again I'll, I'll go back to five e. It has a pretty good balance on it. It's you can hit someone who is adjacent to one of your allies, or you have advantage against. And um, maybe it's just because our rogue is is ranged um, that like it feels really good when he gets a sneak attack, but it doesn't feel like he's doing nothing when his when he doesn't get his sneak attack. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel that. I mean, I do think sneak attack is a pretty great example of this, though. I think sneak attack. I, I have. I have a. I have a tough relationship with sneak attack. I think sneak attack damage dice is a little too high, um, and it's kind of also a little too easy to activate. This is yep. offset in a lot of ways because um, uh, this is offset in a lot of ways because rogues have a lower to hit right because they're they're yeah. fifteen, they're three quarters, and they're not full bab. Um, and you see it a lot when uh, like the the slayer, for instance, doesn't get. Um, the kind of sneak attack progression that a rogue gets, but really when you lay it out, like rogues do just really insane damage and it's not as hard to set up sneak attacks. Um, but I do kind of, I, I very much enjoy the trick attack version of, uh, 
of kind of like the rogue where you are adding on that actually feels like a good version of um the the trigger tank being an, an operative ability in, in starfinder that actually feels like a good version of sort of what i'm describing when we're talking about like failure states right like you're at you're adding an additional failure state to the to the attack but it doesn't wipe the attack itself so you can use stealth or you can use computers or you can use whatever to kind of um like get your awesome uh trick attack damage in um and if you fail that check, you uh, and if you fail that check, you don't lose the attack. You just lose like the bonus dice damage. Um, and in a lot of ways, I almost feel like that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the poster child for what a lot of this like rule of cool stuff like looks like. But also, it falls into some of the traps that we've been talking about. Specifically, um, the you just do it every turn trap. Yeah, um, I, I find that with the operative in in our Starfinder game. Um, uh, it, it doesn't help that the player playing it, who, um, great, great dude, but is very much like a mechanically focused person, and is like, the optimal thing for me to do every turn is to use the trick attack, so I will use the trick attack, and um, the actual rules around using the trick attack stuff is like, are like, very broad and kind of like, unrestrictive, so you can, like, you don't have to actually actively use the skill you use to activate it. Like, like, it doesn't have to make sense for the situation. Um, it's just, like, I have, like, uh, a, like an acrobatics, acrobatics bonus, so I will, like, almost never fail my trick attack attack, right? So I will use, always use acrobatics. Even if it would make more sense for me to use stealth or, like, computers or whatever, I'm going to use acrobatics because I am much less likely to fail that, that version of the check. And I think that, I think in, in a lot of ways... Whereas it, it's 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 a good kind of like concept, it really falls into the, the the kind of worst version of this, which is like the proverbial leap off the shield even if you don't need to type of stuff. Yeah, it, I, it feels to me like Trick Attack was set up to be contingent in ways that it didn't end up being contingent. Um, yeah, and I think it's mostly tough because for something like acrobatics, that's kind of a um, you know like a kind of like apropos of nothing scale versus something like computers right so for instance if you if you have trick attack with computers they say like oh you like remote hack a screen and cause it to flash you know making some or like getting someone's attention right or like you make a sound come out of a speaker or something like that but if i'm fighting somebody in you know if i'm fighting a a, a space worm on a uninhabited asteroid i can't use that trick attack unless i do something else right i have to provide something else to it right but hypothetically speaking and i found that this i found this to be the case when it came to um to rogues in fourth edition because i also had this sort of uh interaction you don't need anything else but your own body in order to acrobatics right, right. so all you do is you say i you know jump I do over a cartwheel I, I do a cartwheel one square to the right and then i attack right that's acrobatics but you can do that anywhere even in the vacuum of space you can yeah. do an acrobatics check um and so there's kind of uh there's kind of like a disconnect between two of those and there's know, no, like the, the, the like two of those abilities and there's no advantage for using your computer's bonus right so you're so you're always going to use the acrobatics check um and you know may, maybe there's like a thought that you 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 want to um that, that you know well, you use a computer check when you can't because your computer's check will be higher for some other reason. But the problem is because trick attack is such a driving force behind the operative class, 
you're optimizing on the on on one of those trick attack skills anyway, um, specifically to enable trick attack. So, um, and and I I don't I don't really have a good like ideally you'd kind of want to like either incentivize some of the lesser skills or like put more limitations on what on, on how each of the skills work, but that's like a lot of writing and also a hard thing to balance. I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm really what I'm talking my you're gonna not like this answer. Really what I'm talking myself into the longer I think about this problem, I think it's just something that's contingent on, you know, a GM and his table. And I don't know that there is a good way um to sort of uh hit this problem except to kind of have a tough you know, GM with a, with a strong arm willing to enforce this in, in kind of whatever capacity that it is. Um, because I think, you know, there are certain, there are certain moments where you can incentivize it. Um, but there, the, the, if there is anyone that is able to kind of make those sorts of decisions on the fly, it's the GM, and they should be making those decisions on the fly, and they should be the ones saying, you know what, if you do the run and jump, you know, like, that worked at the time, but it doesn't do anything for you this time. You just, like, wasted your move action or whatever in order to kind of, like, forcibly refuse the ability of a player to kind of, like, break the system um, over and over again by trying to, I guess, like, weaponize the GM's precedent against him in that way. Do you know what I mean? I and that, like... At, at a certain at a certain point, where do we just say it is up to the GM to police this? No, no, I I absolutely agree with you, and I, I think that's kind of the the point, right? Like this is, I'm just I, I think the exercise is is good for like pointing out pitfalls, so you can I think in an ideal world you never like you never hit that situation in the first place, right? And I think that I I do think that there's more you can do to prevent that than simply like like being arbitrary and breaking consistency rules um and they're and they're a lot of and i think a lot of it does come down to 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 gm's ability to improvise right um and uh i think like the the answer the answer to like the the jump off the, the the shield problem i think is if you've entered into it where like the leap over the wall was particularly effective but you don't want your players using it in like an open field of battle um is 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 something like, I don't know, uh, like just com coming up with decent reasons, right? Like, you know, the reason it worked before is because, um, is because the guy's back was turned to you and didn't expect you to come over the top. Um, it's just a normal attack here, right? Or something like that. And th that's a lot of that's on the GM, but I think being prepared for those kinds of pratfalls is better than not being prepared for them and and trying to build in ways that you can encourage it is also a nice thing uh, and so i think for like kind of this this last part of the podcast maybe we can talk a little bit about the different action point systems because i've got i've got i was actually thoughts. about to bring that up because i do have a lot of thoughts about action points action points are a system i mean you know we started hell's rebels two years ago and i've evolved on a lot of ideas uh but action points are a system that i felt very good about in the beginning of hell's rebels and over time i realized was not as good as i thought um and i'm almost at a point where i just don't know that i think action point systems will ever be in, in a, they, I kind of just feel like at this point we've we as a group of people understand the mechanics so well that we break them, um, and I don't know if there is a version of action points that would be able to fix that. 
Yeah. Um. So, I think for our table mate, so our, a lot of our table is also focused around like, um, crunch mastery, and I think part of part of the thing happen that happens there is that, um, you almost kind of don't want to use a lot of the weird kind of, um, rule of cool stuff because like the, your 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 point of expression and enjoyment is through you is through mastery of the existing mechanics right right like um i think that's having having to rely on an action point feels kind of like a cheat yeah not not even like a cheat but it's like it's like a you know to this is going to sound kind of ridiculous but it's, it's a failing of you as a master gamer that you had to rely on some cheesy trick instead of the the well prepared thing that you've been building your character for um and I think that's less true for some of the people in, in Hell's Rebels terms, Weirin and Maragrug. I think this is less true for. Um, I think it is very true for Alaric. Um, and, uh, I mean, Beauregard's based on ignoring combat mostly, so it doesn't count. Um, but um, that kind of, like, in the games I'm playing, the 5e game I'm playing and Mark's Pathfinder game uh, in person, there's a lot of newer players who kind of come and have less of those um, uh, tendencies. Um, and also just kind of, uh, I think the, the, the 5e system is a little bit, because there are less options in 5e, the desire to push for different ways to handle things is like, you have less options to pick out of your hand as a player. Um, and so you look to cool things to do in the environment to do, to kind of add variety to that. Um, if that makes sense. Um. Yeah, I no, I, I super feel that. I, I also think that um, there are certain pieces. So, for instance, I don't think action point systems are good when they are simultaneously an offensive and defensive option. I think that's the biggest flaw in my action point system, which allows you to make defensive um, plays and people just save it to be a not die button, right? Yeah. Because you always, you know, you will always trust that you can DPS a guy down, right? And if you ever get into a dangerous situation, you can just action point away his stuff. And that kind of defensive play, I think, removes a lot of the stakes. This has happened a couple of times where, like, big things have happened and I'm like, oh, what a great opportunity. Boom, I use this ability or something like that. And then somebody goes, oh, I use an action point and force his attack to fail. Um, whereas I feel like the proper situation is only to have action points be available offensively um to allow you to perform um you know for you to dps harder and like better um in 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 a certain side in a certain sort of situation do you know what i mean so i i see what you're saying and i think that that's actually i don't think that's entirely true but i think that that's tied to a confounding factor um which is that i think that's true if you have like storable action points the way that inspiration works, I think it has two key components. One, it's per session. Um, and it's only, it's you get one per session and you can maybe earn it back. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's we, like in, in my year of playing that game, we have never earned a point back. Or one person earned a point back once for a really good joke. Um, and uh, the other thing about it is that you, you can spend it after the result is shown um right like so in practice what that is done for my group 
is that occasionally gets pre-spent for something that you know it's really important, but what it usually means is in a moment of high tension, right, where it's really important that either offensively or defensively this roll goes the right way, the die comes up short, and you just kind of, like, you know, you grab your token, you kind of slam it on the table, and it's like, not today, right? Um, and I think that really works well, and I think that that, like, I think that that works that well that way because, you know, you, you, you always, you feel good about spending it at a moment of high tension in the session because I think you can kind of feel those out, if that makes sense, right? Like, it's, the, the reason. Yeah, that, that is interesting, I'm thinking. Because if you, if you, um, if you save them up, right, if you could save them up, it's kind of like this, like, uh, it's, I forget the, the TV tropes term for it, but it's like, you're going to keep saving them up because there might always be a more important place to use them oh yeah 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 yeah. no i know what you mean the the you know you you hoard potions yeah um in skyrim or something like that yeah um but uh in in this case um if it's per session you can kind of feel where the bigger points of the session are going to be and so you can uh feel good about spending it there i don't so session works for the way i'm playing with this 5e game which is like long sessions on a Saturday. I don't think it would work as well for our three-hour sessions. It's like, essentially, our Hell's Rebel sessions, like, the, the what I would call a session is more like a scene, maybe. And not it's not a scene, but maybe like an act. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about sessions is that it's not part of the simulation. It is explicitly outside of the confines of the game world, which is something that Pathfinder 3.5 always kind of eschew, right? Like, you, you, you want to do something per day, which basically kind of means per session in a lot of situations, but sometimes it doesn't, you know what I mean? Because you want everything to be defined in the confines of the, the you know, constructed reality of the... Yeah, and part of, part of the reason why it, it works in a longer form game is that um, because you kind of have the... the, the first of all, the longer form games tend to also have fuzzier edges, right? Like... Um, we have a pretty kind of like hard three hour limit for like real world reasons. Um, but in like a, an, basically it's a Saturday game and it will last about six hours modulo one, maybe two on like a, a on an intense day. Um, and because you get one per those, uh, those, like essentially those sessions have an arc to them and it feels like you've used one for that. Like that day is an act or a scene or a chapter, whatever literary term you want to use. And it feels good to have one for that in order for it to work for the type of game that we play. Um, especially since we like have cut sessions off in the middle of battles because we needed to, right. And you have to kind of like put better kind of like trim around the quote unquote chapter bits, which I think, I think feels a little weirder, but I, I, I think that those are, if I think those are important parts and it, it kind of really enables that kind of cool, cool stuff to happen. At, at least it's been, it's worked very well in, in, in the five E game that I play in. Yeah. Yeah. I think inspiration might be my favorite. I see. I don't like inspiration. One of the things I don't like about action point systems is I don't like action point failure states. I like an action point to come out. It's, it's tough. Cause I, I get, I kind of get it both ways. Like it adds like that extra layer of tension but I always feel like it sucks when that extra layer of tension falls through. Um, and I also feel yeah. like a D6 is too low. Well, um, inspiration is advantage. So you roll it. Oh, oh yeah, actually. So advantage is better. Yeah, advantage is better. 
Uh, I'm sorry. I thought it was a D6 um, to, to a D20 roll, but it was obviously... That, that's of, Mythic Power. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of Mythic Power that we were talking about. Yeah, like because I, I played in a game once where action points was 2D6. That was probably the best that it's ever felt like um, because the consistency was like fairly high. Like You were going to get a bonus of, you know... You had, what, 75% or higher to get between... 4 and 9 or something like you know what i mean like there was a yeah. really high chance that you got uh, a pretty sizable boost right like you increase your chances of success by 20 by 20% um or or sort of higher um and i think that that was probably about right um cuz even if somebody ro ends up rolling snake eyes you know womp womp yeah. but uh but the the lion's share of the time uh you got it off uh you got it off well that was one of the things that i quote unquote fixed with my action point system where i just said it becomes a 20 it becomes a one right depending on how you how you use it and it, it has a very uh, there is no rng to it right it has a definite use um Which I kind of think is a little bit necessary for systems along. These yeah, lines. I, I, I actually, I, I don't know if, if, I don't know how I feel about that because I think having, having the ability to fail there is still kind of important. But I, I definitely feel what you say when you when you say that like a failed action point feels really bad. Um. I think if mm -hmm, I don't know, I, I, I really don't know how to. How, how to how to hit that yeah i mean i think advantage works pretty well um especially because you can roll it afterwards that seems really effective to me to be honest with you it seems just boy that seems effective it, it, um, because... it is but sometimes you roll a three and a four right no like... no 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 sure sure but the the thing i like about it is it is i mean it's essentially kind of a re-roll um like yeah. action point to re-roll sort of thing um which i think is you know which I think is pretty pretty okay. I almost kind of like this is getting crunchy, but I almost kind of want to combine the two, right? Like you roll a second time, but you roll a d6 with it or something like that, and add them, mm. um, or something kind of along those sorts of lines to kind of up that consistency a bit. I think RNG is at the end of the day good, right? Like I yeah. think um, uh, you know I think the lion's share of the time using an action point should feel good. It should be successful, and you should be able to rely on it and say, you know what, my chances of success are going to go up by quite a bit by using this action point. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't know, it's clunky to do that, and I don't think it would make any sense. Yeah, so, so here, here's an interesting thing that this, this is part of it, right? Like, um, uh, the Angry GM, who I've talked about before, has, has thoughts on, on, uh, on uh, inspiration. Um, essentially that, like, as written, it's kind of just, like, do whatever you want with it. Um, whereas at, at my 5e table, the, the kind of said rule was that you want you can only use it for an action that like you know is 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 in your like important for your character right like um in a way that like you know the paladin uses it to to save someone or like you know the uh you know I, i'm a dwarf warlock uh who hates kobolds so like i can use it to hit like i can use it on when I'm, we're fighting kobolds or whatever Some, something like that like you know essentially driving it so it's not just like a win button when you need it um and it's more tied to the character but in practice it, it, it has um it has walked back towards um just kind of whenever right like uh uh like i try and use them in situations that are like 
it works itself out in a lot of ways because in a lot of ways it's like well if it's a dire situation then it's by definition important to your character and of course you can spend the inspiration yeah um uh but there has been at least once where like the 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 paladin's oath is vengeance in our game um and and uh, he goes spend his uh uh his his inspiration is like so what's your motivation vengeance and you, you, know, you just kind of like yell vengeance and go for it right yeah e- even though it's like maybe not the most appropriate at the time but uh what are you going to do um uh the reason I bring that up is because I was thinking that your reroll plus d6 like you can get the D6 if it's really in character, but it also feels like you will quickly request to everybody gets the D6. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, we used to do a system, the very first iteration of Mark's action point system, which I almost kind of like, was um, you uh, you describe what you're doing to Mark and he adjudicates a certain number between 1 and 5, and that's the number of D6 that you get. It was called, like, stunt points or something like that. Mm. Um and so, like, you would be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And you describe your plan, essentially. And he'd be like, okay, that's worth three stunt points, you know, or four stunt points. I was I, – I used this system liberally because I always felt very good about my ability to kind of, like, do cool things that would get high stunt point values. Um, but, like, it, it has the bonus of if you're somebody like, you know – well, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to talk bad about anybody in that game. But there were players in that game that were not, you know, like that weren't really engaging with it. They were trying to game the system to just like get extra die and they would just get one or two. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so th- and that felt pretty that felt pretty effective because like if you were really going, you know, a lot of the balls to the wall shit that I did in that game. Like, so, for instance, um, we had a whole fight in like a like a phlogiston factory and we were being chased by like this giant botanical phlogiston monster and the botanical phlogiston monster was very like it was incredibly obviously set up as like a you run away from this thing um and we were running away from it but i took like a i I made like a move that was a little bit weird and then it followed me and then i was in a dead end and so i kind of had to fight it and i used a um uh and i used an action point and a bunch of stunt points to like pour a bunch of phlogiston inside it and then you know snap my fingers and it blew up and it was cool and it was like very rule of cool like i like a lot of those stories are just because i was able to be like okay listen this is how i killed this big ass flagestin cr15 beast as a level two fucking samurai you know what i mean like (laughs) and uh and i think that that is probably my favorite system because you know it's it's obviously biased towards me and the kind of play that i do but i think it, it's the it's the only system that i think i've played in where you get the kind of cinematic you know uh the cinematic thing that you're looking for um out of out of these like action points because like it's not just about it's about it's kind of like it's kind of like a micro version of like in the oceans 11 movie or something like that in a heist movie where they describe all of the pieces of the heist to you before the heist goes off and then you and then you go back and you run through the plan but the plan kind of maybe it works maybe it doesn't work or whatever um and that's just kind of like interesting and fun to do on like a on like a small scale level yeah um also from uh one of mark's games his 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 in-person game again um a version that he uses is uh he has uh uh fate twist cards which are like they they have like uh um basically descriptions on it like like one's like a building like it's like uh the 
disaster or something, or like uh, uh, they have funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but, the plot twist cards. Yeah, the plot twist cards. It's like, but like they'll have bullet points like. Um, they'll have a mechanical one, but they'll also have, like, a mystery reveals itself, or a structure fails, right? And I find that those work kind of in that action point way, because it encourages, like, you, you have, like, that seed of an idea, and you're looking for opportunities as to, like, how to use a card to do something with that that would make sense, right? Like, um, like you know, there's one where the building falls over, and it's like, well, that there was, like, an opportunity where that made sense, and it happened. The thing I don't the thing that the only fly I have with that system rather is that they seem to be kind of more like deus ex machina cards rather than character character action cards right like a building falls over isn't like i was badass and i kicked the building and it fell over it's you know deus ex machina the building falls over um and I, but i think like a version of plot twist cards where like they are, they are more character motivated could be a, an excellent version of this of this kind of thing as well um I also like just to, to, to put some more notes in of like recharging points by playing character flaws. I really like, like there, that has been in a couple of different systems that I've seen. And I really like that. Essentially the GM offers you like, I will recharge your inspiration, but you are going to either fail this check or you're going to take this, um, non ideal, uh, the non ideal course of action because it really fits with your character and you can refuse it if you want to, but you can take it and like give into your character's flaws, which, which I think is is cool. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on, on that stuff? Uh, I guess I do have a few thoughts on that stuff, but we're also running at like, uh, this is our this is our hour. Um, but we can we can keep running, right? Like it's <laughs> like we're we gonna talk about like wow again. Uh, for like half an hour let's let's, let's keep rolling with this and man i actually do have some stuff to talk fine fuck you mango well, <laughs> I mean, we usually the, the, the pat the half hour for the past several <laughs> weeks has not been as good and we've been mostly like inventing things to talk about in the last part that's uh, true that's fair uh, yeah this is also i mean <laughs> yeah no, I, I i have stuff i want to talk about obviously we'll, but, we'll, uh, we'll get to it but let's Let's we'll get to it. Let's get your thoughts on this, and then and then we'll move to the. To, okay, wait, wait. What, so, what is this? I'm sorry. Um, so the stuff, I, the things I specifically highlighted were the plot twist cards and right, right, right. Okay, recharging, um, recharging your, um, recharging your your inspiration type thing by playing into character flaws. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a system that I that I like a lot from uh, from Seventh C. Seventh C actually also probably has a very elegant way to do this, just because Seventh C does like the if you use a new skill in a round, um, you get you get a bonus for it. I think that might be like one of the best ways to to sort of. Um, I think that might be one of like the best ways to sort of like work around this stuff um, that I that I've seen. But yeah, I you know. Um, I like the sort of playing into character flaws. Um, honestly, it feels bad in Pathfinder in a lot of senses, and I don't think people like. I don't think people like to do it in Pathfinder, um, simply because it. Pathfinder is a game where that sort of thing is punished. I think by the group, um, by the game, and it's it's. Even if you add a, add an incentive to it, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I suppose I should say um, that it would have the kind of desired 
um, it would have the kind of like desired effect. I think in a lot of cases it would sort of be like, you know, like I remember in Gen Con when like Mark betrayed the team because he had like a character flaw for like women or something like that. And he like was like, he betrayed the team and joined like the, ba the bad guy because she was like a hot lady or something like that. Oh, you mean the first year with seven C? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, and, and you know, I I had to suppress this feeling of like, what the fuck, Mark, you piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like, why yeah. are you sabotaging the team? And like, you know, I think that was wrong in the context of 7C is, is, a, is a storyteller generator kind of game. And I think that kind of plot twist is like funny and interesting. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I, th and it's a one shot. So obviously it doesn't matter. Right. Like, it's not like. I need to think about any other sessions past this one, right? We have another 45 minutes to go and then and then it's over sort of thing, right? Like but like in a campaign environment where there is I don't know. I've I've run in campaigns where there are like long running like plot twists where like one of the players in the party was like betraying the party the whole time. And in a lot of ways it just kind of like gets people pissy at each other and out of character. Yeah ways and i and that's the downside here like i think the upside is good um and it is encouraging people to play to type or whatever but i think a lot of the time you're just going to end up in situations like like i had with kind of kenzo where kenzo was having doubts about the mission or whatever and nick was like shut the fuck up and just like get on the railroad tracks do you know what i mean yeah i mean there there were i think there were other issues there too like just to kind of speak to that because i think you're ultimately right um, and I also think that, like, if you do want to pull that kind of shit, it cheapens the moment if you're doing it for, like, a token, um, right? Like, if you really want that moment to bite when it happens, it needs to be because it's your master plan, not because you got a foozle. Um, yeah. um, but I, I think the misstep with Kenzo, um, like, I think that moment could have worked, but none of our characters cared about each other because we were all too edgelordy. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and I, I, yeah, no, I, I think you're ultimately right that like that 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 like I like that recharge thing, but it has to be at like a much, a it, it can't be at like a, a critical moment. It has to be at, like a much lower stake situation, where it's kind of like oh wow that wacky dwarf selling a soul to demons, um, type of thing rather than like you know the oh the campaign failed because you got because you wanted inspiration. Um, but yeah, um, I don't have any deep, any more thoughts to you. Do you want to move on to your, no, I feel like we, I feel like we covered yeah. it. Uh, I do so too. The, yeah. So the thing I wanted to talk about this week is, uh, have you, have you watched or have you ever heard about Ken Burns? Do you know who Ken Burns is? Uh, the, is, is, he sounds familiar. Who he's like? He's like a historian. Um, he made a a big long mini series of like movie length episodes about the Civil War. I think in the nineties. I think it was like the early nineties. And then he did one for World War Two. And he just released a, a most recent one through PBS. That's uh, on Netflix for uh, for like the Vietnam War. Um, and I just want to like really highly recommend that. What kind of this is not to get political or anything like that because I don't, you know, like I'm not. That's not what this is about or whatever. Um, but like, how much about like the Vietnam War did you like learn in school? Um, honestly, I I probably learned more than I remember. Um, 
enough that I, that like uh, I'm like Sandhawk. That's like Vietnam, and I know I know about uh, Fortunate Son, but um, not like you know. There's obviously the stuff about the protesters and whatnot. Yeah, uh, and kind of like, and, and I. Uh, maybe this was like a quirk of my history teacher, but like there, I remember a lot of focus on like basically guerrilla warfare and like Charlie Tunnels. Um, mm-hmm. But like, yeah, so the, it was very interesting because I remember watching the Civil War documentary and thinking to myself, "This reminds me of a lot of shit from history class, right?" Because you learn a lot about the Civil War and about like oh, like the first Battle of Bull Run, and then you know, Gettysburg, and then Antietam was, everybody fucking died there, and, you know, like, all this other, uh, all this other sort of stuff, but I, I realized that, like, the longer I was watching of the Vietnam War, like, there were some things that I had heard of, but I didn't quite understand, like, like, the Tet Offensive, you know, I've heard that term before, but I really don't know what it meant, or I didn't know what it meant, um, and the more I watched about it, the more enthralled I was, um, just by my own kind of, like, ignorance of like this period in in like our in like our history and and how uh uh and how kind of um yeah how how much it was covered in in how much breadth right yeah i mean i i think there's a bunch of stuff you can go into there one um the revolutionary and the civil wars are things you get taught repeatedly over the course of your primary school education yeah um two um even like back when we were in school, uh, like we were, it was still closer to to Vietnam than we are now. I think in a significant way. Um, also, like that's also like we are like children of the post Cold War Golden Age, but we're still like close enough to the Cold War. And the Vietnam War is very much a communism, you know, the Cold War esque war. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's like even. Even, you know, the American school system is not the greatest, but it's it still has, like, measures of, of educational freedom. But even so, I think people are, are lax to, like, sh- shit on America, for lack of a better term. Um, I think that's, like, a big part of it, right? Like, we, we effectively lost that war. Man, um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, it's funny because uh, I, I had a history teacher that was... Uh, uh, I had a history teacher that was kind of like simultaneously like both in that he was a very unapologetic teacher when it came to the kind of like imperialism that defined, um, uh, you know, early American sort of society, sort of like slavery and shit like that. Um, and and I don't know that I would have a quite the same view of America if I didn't have that kind of like you know you know what I mean like it's the it's the kind of um, <laughs> it's the kind of stereotype where it's like somebody you know like you go on a field trip to like the Statue of Liberty and the teacher gets to the top and he's like okay what did I tell you kids this statue is fucking meaningless we're all hypocrites we stole this land from the Native Americans <laughs> or whatever right and he was a little bit of that kind of a you know like he was a little bit of that kind of a teacher um, but. Uh, but yeah, I, I I do think that there is something about the Vietnam War that's uh that is a lot harder to like teach and understand that even like World War Two, right? Because like you have different theaters of war and a couple of like big like meaningful battles. Like one of the defining features it seems of the Vietnam War is that basically fucking everything was meaningless. There was no territory to gain or front lines to you know like this is this is what fighting like an asymmetrical war like that you know is essentially. 
Um, um, you know what I bet a big part of it is? Um, the people who were teaching teaching us, it probably remembered it um, in various capacities, right? Yo, Either as, yeah, right, for real. Um, which is not something that we can say that, that would be true about, like, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. I, I wonder, that's actually, like, I just kind of realized that, and, you know, I wonder if, like, you know, this, like, the, the teachers that are our age are going to be teaching it in, in how they're going to be teaching it since they don't have that. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the cool things about the, the this one is that people were there and it was, it, it, you could, you can interview people, right? right. So, like, the Ken Burns style, I mean, I didn't watch his, his, thing on world war ii but the ken burns style is sort of defined by firsthand you know accounts um of of the fighting taking place right so for the civil war documentary a lot of it is like letters and journals of soldiers as they're kind of like you know writing letters to their wives or they're you know like writing entries in their in their journals or whatever and it's read by like famous people like i think frederick Douglass is morgan freeman and stuff like that um but in this one, you can just sit there and talk to, you know, uh, you, can, you can talk to a guy that was in the fighting and what he has to say about it. Um, and they do, and they talk to – one, the, one of the coolest parts about it, actually, is that you talk to a lot of people in the North Vietnamese Army or, like, who were in the, the – you know, like, the Viet Cong at the time. Um, and there's no, like, politicians like John McCain and John Kerry are not in this, you know, like, are not in this documentary. It is, uh, it's mostly, like, writers and historians, like, people who are, like, on the ground and then ended up sort of kind of teaching or in academia in some, in some, uh, in some way or another. Yeah, man, it's brutal. It's so good, though. And I, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, because holy shit do I recommend this thing. It's, like, 20 fucking hours, because each one of these things is, like, two hours long. It's, like, a movie or whatever. Um, but it really, and it goes through everything. Like I didn't even quite have a good sense for how poorly, um, all of the American, you know, like I, in, in a lot of ways, I think Vietnam gets blamed on JFK and Lyndon Johnson. Um, like the, um, you know, the, the thing that I learned in high school about it was that like, you know, JFK was a president that everybody liked, but when you actually look at him, he was kind of an unsuccessful president, right? Like he, you know, he surrounded himself with like really smart people, but these were people that just got us deeper involved in the quagmire of, of Vietnam or whatever. But like they, what they don't teach you is how like that was just kind of a continuation of uh, Eisenhower, like Eisenhower did this stuff. Um, and it just got worse and, and then obviously Nixon is a huge piece of shit, right? And he's just like worse and worse about it. Um, and I just never, you know, like, we just never learned any of that stuff. Because I think there's this, like, I don't know, there's this there's this desire to sort of blame it all on one person, right? Or, like, center it around one person. Um, so, you know, like, the Revolutionary Great history, War. right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And it's like, you want to center the Revolutionary War around George Washington or the Civil War around Abraham Lincoln or World War II around FDR. Um, but, like, you can't do that with Vietnam because five presidents came and went. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um... There's also like, I I have I have obviously not watched this series, but I've I've listened to, um I think I think this this is why I find it familiar. I th I think around the time this was released, um it like made made like there were some interviews with people um that I listened to, um a lot of it was talking about how kind of like, how much of a quagmire it really was, and like, um, it might have been Nixon. I I think it, one of the presidents, like went into the presidency with the intention of basically just being done with it and getting out. 
and like once he's there can't bring himself to do it right like for one for one reason or another um i think the 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 version i heard was like was just slightly sympathetic right like you know um we we just can't like leave these people at the hands of communists or something like that um but like uh, nothing's as, as simple as as it seems um, and i mean it well, and, and it was also because you can admit like the politics of it are way more yeah. interesting and complex than i ever understood right because like it's not just about the war being you know like being a, a kind of perpetual stalemate but like not even because america is pouring like billions of dollars into it or you know like whatever however much right. money they're they're pouring into it um because like the north vietnamese are legitimately like shitty and awful right like right. yeah there is there's not a lot of difference between you know like the north vietnamese setting up re-education camps that are essentially concentration camps right and having a secret police that's going around and rounding up all of these like dissidents or whatever um to to kind of be you know re-educated or whatever it is um and they're killing political prisoners but like even just like the american prisoners of war the north vietnamese the, the north vietnamese didn't believe in prisoners of war because there was no war for them so they thought that these every that every prisoner of war that they captured was a war criminal um and because of that you know i mean there's like the famous thing of the guy who blinked Blink torture, torture. Yeah, 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 yeah in morris code that was what that was their justification they were like we're not bound by like the fucking G geneva convention because the u.s didn't declare there's no war here right um so we can just like do whatever we want but it's like yeah like if you're nixon um the the there is a there is just as powerful a oh please oh god how can we let these people you know torture our good boys in blue or whatever um as there is a you know every marine that returns from the war is a baby killer yeah um interesting i'll, I'll have to check that out um, yeah it's a it's a it's a like it's a slog in the sense that there's a lot of it but boy man I, was like, <laughs> I don't know that I've been like that enraptured with like a TV show in a long time. Maybe this is me getting older. You know what I mean? And I start yeah. watching like all of the History Channel documentaries. <laughs> um, on a lighter note, I watched uh, a bunch of Boku no Hero Academia, um, which is also a long-running story about conflict. Um, it is an anime. Um, it's a it's basically a superhero anime. Um, it's interesting in that it's kind of like. It's like a, what I want to call like a shared universe kind of situation, even though it's not a shared universe, right? Like, but you know how like, um, you know, like the, the X-Men or Batman or Superman, all the people in those universes, um, kind of have like consistent consistencies to them, uh. um, that get broken with, in like, essentially you've been living with crossovers for so long. That's not really like a thing anymore. Um, but like. Basically, it's in that kind of, like, crossover realm. Everybody's got, like, the same explanation for it, but, like, you've got wildly differing powers from, like, um, just being a frog to, um, to, like, the ability to, like, levitate things to, like, having jet engines growing out of your legs. Wow. Um, uh, it's a very cool series. It's very well done. Um, I, I hear great things about it. Yeah, it, it's, it is a shonen, uh, so, you know, it's, it's not like you're, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's. No, it's very good, but it's it is a shonen. If you know you're expecting anything else, it's a shonen. Um, and uh, it's uh, what else can I say about it? 
Um, I have laughed out loud many times. I've also um, uh, cried a couple times. I'm, I'm a weepy kind of guy, so like maybe that's not as impressive. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's it's a very emotional show. Um, I would uh, highly recommend it. Are you, are you familiar with the premise at all? No, not really. All right. Well, let me let me sell this to you. So, uh, it's a world where about eighty percent of people um, are born with quirks, or they're called quirks, which are essentially superpowers. Um, they vary wildly, as, as I described. Um, and one of the things you can do is, if you have a power, you you can go get licensed to use it, uh, which you know. Sh- triggers all of my like nanny state alarms but you know it's Japan. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's funny um but uh but you know essentially you you go um to school to be a superhero right like you get licensed you join an agency and you save the world some people use their powers for like less impressive things right like construction or whatever um but uh you go like uh the kind of the prestigious thing to do in the world is to to go to the Hero Academy, um, which is very exclusive, and get licensed and become a su- become a professional superhero who gets paid by the state to protect the people, um, and it follows this guy whose uh, his name is uh, uh, Izu- uh, Izukiya Midoriya, um, also known as Deku, um, and he's a kid who has wanted to be a superhero his entire life. That's all he's wanted, but it turns out he's part of the twenty percent of people who don't have quirks. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, this is very mild spoilers for like the first four episodes of the series, but it's basically the premise. So I'm going to go over it. Um, and, uh, he, uh, the, the kind of Superman of this university, the, the everlasting symbol of peace is all might, who is a, just a big beefy guy, um, who like, who punches real hard. Um, he's very much like a superhero in the cut of an American superhero. So much so that like when he punches things, he yells like Detroit smash. Um, and it's, it's very funny but um uh uh what's it uh deku um basically uh he's he feels bad about himself um because he can't become a hero right um at one point he meets all might uh, he catches all might at a, at a at a point so essentially the issue with all might uh, or the thing you find out about all might is that five years ago he had an injury um and he's actually just kind of like this like a lanky looking dude um, who is powered up by a superpower, but because of an injury he sustained, he is um, not able to maintain his heroic form for as long as he used to be able to. Um, we're told it's three hours a day. Um, and Deku, and you know, and he looks like a normal guy. So like Deku's like, you know, could someone like me who's quirkless even be a hero? And All Might's kind of like, you know, you really kind of be realistic about it, right? Like you can't, um, and it's kind of like soul crushing for this kid, right? Um, and it's funny because like All Might's kind of very much like over the top, like oh yes, I am the greatest, right? Um, but then uh, Deku's walking home, and he sees that one of his classmates, who bullies him, you know, mercilessly, is being held captive by a uh, by a villain because there are people who use their powers for evil in this world as well, um, and. Uh, and there's a bunch of heroes kind of like standing on the side and they don't want to approach because it's too dangerous. Um, and something in Deku snaps and he like, he ba- he just like sprints in and he throws his backpack at the thing and it lets the kid, like he's, he's suffocating the kid. And so it lets the, the, his, his friend, he lets his friend take a breath. Um, and uh, un- unspinosed to Deku, All Might is just like watching over at the side and he's like, 
like any he's in his power down form he's like oh, what am i i'm a fucking pathetic piece of shit like what am i doing if this kid who has no powers is, is willing to dive in like this um and so he pumps himself up gets rid of the villain and then later that day he he catches up with deku he's like you've got like the spirit of a hero in it and you you can be a hero and we find out that um all might can actually transfer his power um, and then Deku is secretly going to become the inheritor of All Might's power, which is called One for All. Uh, yeah. Um, and then the rest, of, the rest of the uh, the series is is him going to high school to be a superhero, um, and it's really really well done. Um, uh, even even like you know, even those kind of like opening moments which sound kind of trite, um, it's done really well. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, All Might comes across as being really genuine and sincere and kind of like in a way that like a lot of kind of American media, I think at this point is kind of cynical about things. Um, all might is kind of like pure and good. And there are cynical characters in, in, in this, like the number two hero is guy named Endeavor is the father of one of the, uh, one of his classmates. Um, not a great guy. Um, and it's, and it's kind of like, there's like, you know, one of the themes is kind of like, you know, these heroes are kind of just like celebrities that are doing this for the money. And maybe, maybe that's a problem. Um, uh, but it's, uh, it even t- touches on some stuff about like, you know, like mass media promotion of like, of bad people and like giving people what they want type of stuff. It's really interesting, really well done. Um, I'm hoping it's got some cool stuff up in the air. I'm, I'm about... I'm most of the way through the second season right now. There's the third season is currently ongoing, and I would highly recommend it to anybody out there who likes uh, just like some good ass anime, good ass hero anime, um, available on Crunchyroll, which we're not sponsored by. Um, but yeah, no, uh, we could be uh, Crunchyroll if you're listening. Y- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and Ken Burns, yeah, if you want to personally like sponsor the podcast because I liked your Vietnam War yeah. documentary. <laughs> Oh man, Ken Burns on Crunchyroll, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, otherwise, the it, anime wars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh man, uh, have, have you, you been have you been watching the World Cup? No, not at all. Um, I don't like like I I am I am kind of I'm glad it's over. Uh, well, oh why was there? Um, it just. I'm, I mean, I guess I'm not glad. It's just kind of like I don't care, and it causes traffic. Um, oh, fair enough. Or like people being obnoxious. Um, uh, but you know, other than that, it's it's fine. I'm not like constitutionally against soccer. <laughs> um, um, otherwise, biggest thing is uh, uh, it's the last week before the pre-patch, and I'm furiously trying to get my fencers reach. Before, uh, before the clock. Is that, is that the only mage tower that you're going for? It's, it's the only one that I can't do at this point. Uh, but gotcha. I didn't really care about a lot of the other ones. So, so you got Windwalker and you got this. Yeah, like, okay. like I might go for Brewmaster, and theoretically, I guess I could try and like bust my ass on um, on uh, on 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 my disc priest, but. Um, you can maybe do some of the other ones. I a, a lot of what I mean. I had more time than you, obviously, when it came to the mage towers. Um, but basically, what ended up happening for me is I just had so much fun doing the initial round of mage towers because I kind of picked out what appearances I liked right. most. Um, 
And, uh, and but then I was like, I want to keep doing this. So you know, on Gonder, who was already geared for demonology, I was just like, let's do it on Destro. And like for Grimmit, who, who I did it on Outlaw, I went and I did Assassination and, and Subtlety. Um, but the big question is kind of relics. Like if you can fill, slot relics into like the Assassination one was insanely easy to be honest. I one shot that one, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't care enough. I don't think I care enough about the other rogue specs to do them. Like, I might care enough to do Brewmaster. I definitely don't care about Mistweaver. Um, like yeah, I, I don't know if, how hard Brewmaster is. That tank challenge is tough. Yeah, the the Brewmaster one looks like the the appearance looks cool, but I don't know if if, if I if I'm able or willing to, to do it. Um. Yeah, but that that's basically basically my week's been Boku no Hero Academia and. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and that, um, and some PUBG. PUBG, as always, uh, we played, we, we, we played the, uh, the event mode today, which is, um, deathmatch, but only with shotguns. A lot of fun. We managed to get a first place. It was, it was much better than it usually is because we had five people that was the entirety of the team that we all knew, um. And I think, you know, some of the people, like, some of that's, like, you know, the, the particular people we were playing with. But it was it was a good time. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, what about you? You have, you have anything else you were doing this week? Uh, I completed my, my like, I know I've said this before, but I completed my, like, absolute final bonus set. I got the bear form. Oof. Um, which I was not planning on doing. And then I was just kind of like, mm, you know what, why not? Yeah. And then... <laughs> Uh, and it turned out that I actually had a good set of legendaries for it because I could kind of cheese the fight. Um, the tank encounter is hard because the first bit has a guy, uh, like an Inquisitor, and he has an aura, a 10-foot aura around him or like a 10-yard aura around him. And if the longer you stand in that aura, the more ticks of um, a debuff you get that reduces your max health by 10%. But it's not damage. And a lot of tanks have, uh, and a lot of tanks have abilities that are like, you know... Regen regenerate fifty percent of the damage you took over the last five seconds, right? But you don't take. You, it's not like you're taking fifty percent of your health and damage. You're just losing it as right. part of like the debuff or whatever. Um, and it like makes you squishy and stuff like that. But I could cheese the fight because if you take Boomkin Affinity and you have a certain set of legendaries or whatever, you can actually cr increase your range by more than 10 yards where your abilities are of a 13-yard range and you just DPS them down from outside of the circle. Um, so nice. That was awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am interested for the... Uh, I'm interested to see, I guess... Um, the pre-patch coming out uh, on Tuesday. <clears throat> but I feel like... Um, I feel like we're not going it, to... We're only going to get a small piece of it because they said that they're not... They're unlocking the story week by week. So I, th I don't think it'll be that much well, right well, off the bat. Are the mechanic changes going to... Are there, there going to be big mechanic changes this time around? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The mechanic changes... Sorry, I'm talking about from like a story perspective. Oh, okay. Yeah, the big mechanic changes are happening, so do all we, of the BFA changes to the classes are coming out on Tuesday. Do we do we already know what those are? Uh, yeah. I'm sure if I looked up on, like, Wowhead or something, it would probably have, like, a summary of, like, what's changing for your class in BFA? Okay. Um, I was just curious if I could go look it up now if I have to wait to Tuesday. Um... Well, yeah, that sounds exciting. I actually realized I need to finish out the the post 
story on on Billamong, uh, uh, I because I did it on uh, did it on uh, on Beauregard, uh, uh, which is like maxed out the the AP, the uh, the power on a uh, on on your yeah. So you get like that constant ticking. Yeah, that it look where it looks like the game just like freaked the fuck out. Oh, uh, oof! I wonder. Can, I, I I bet you can't, but can, can you put can you put the power from the sword into the into the fishing rod? No, no, I wish. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a fucking like every once in a while I'll go catch a bunch more fish and throw them into the ocean, and it's like still like a thousand fish away from my next point, and you know never gonna actually get there. But uh, you know, is is um you uh. The the the, de- the angler is actually coming with us, right? Like it's the only artifact that's that's making the transition. Or... I think so. I actually have no idea what fishing is like in BFA. All right, excellent. Well, I'll be on the f- front lines of that story. So when we when we undoubtedly do our BFA uh, episode in August. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Only other big news is uh, week before that is Monster Hunter World PC. Uh, which I'm hyped for. I know Nick's hyped for. Are you? Are Isn't you... it also Gen Con? Uh, it is right after Gen Con. Okay. Uh, I I am. Uh, I guess should I say moderately hyped for uh, Monster Hunter World? Like I could maybe get into it, uh, but it's kind of up in the air. The new the new Hearthstone expansion got announced, so you know Ooh. that's gonna that's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be some money down the drain. <laughs> Uh, neat. Yeah. Uh, I think that's everything I wanted to talk about. You have any last things to to cover? No, no. I feel like we. Uh, I feel like we got it. I feel like we we hit the nail on the head. All right then. Uh, well, if you'd like to email us to tell us what you think about um the rule of cool or, or uh, any of the other things we talked about on this podcast, you can email us at um podcast at subnervousplaygames dot com or subnervousplaygames at gmail dot com. Um. Or you can, uh, or you can also follow us on twitch.tv slash games. Um, you can please rate and review us on iTunes and, uh, leave comments on SoundCloud. Uh, get in touch with us however you want. We're on Twitter too. Check out all those links in the description. Tweet me. Um, <laughs> yeah, tweet, tweet buddy. <laughs> <laughs> besides, besides your, your Twitter, do you have anything else that you want to promote? <laughs> no. No, I don't. <laughs> In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>